Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we've got with us on the line from New York City, Father Jim Martin. How are you, sir? Great. Good to be with you. Hey, thank you for uh, taking the time to talk with us about your new book, The Abbey. No, my pleasure. It's great to be with you. Now, many of my listeners probably were introduced to you by your many appearances on The Colbert Report. How, how many people do you find have gotten to know you because of that show? Well, I would say uh, a significant portion of people. Uh, you know, I, I work at American Magazine. I'm a Jesuit priest, uh, like the Pope. And, um, you know, I've been doing a lot of writing over the years. But it's that show that I think, uh, you know, made more people kind of aware of what I do and who I am. So it's a lot of fun, especially among young people. I mean, that's what they know most. If I go to a college campus, you know, they could, the, the, the person introducing me will, could talk to their blue in the face about my books and magazine articles. But once they say the Colbert Report chaplain, everybody perks up. Yeah, yeah. How did you get to know Stephen? Well, I'd done an article in 2007 uh, on Mother Teresa. And I don't know if you remember, um, when her book came out, uh, it was a collection of her letters published after she had died called Come Be My Light. Um, there was talk in there, she had talked in there about her struggles in prayer and, you know, sort of feelings that God was absent. And I wrote a piece in the New York Times about that, kind of explaining that, you know, that's kind of natural in the spiritual life, uh, just sort of, you know, feeling, you know, difficult times yeah. in prayer, as you know. And um, so Colbert saw it and had me on. And uh, yeah, and then it started, I think I was on seven or eight times over the, the next couple of years. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, I, he proclaimed me his official chaplain at one point, which was kind of funny. Too. So <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. And, you know, it's a good time to be able to go on a show and, you know, talk about God and talk about Jesus. And, I mean, you know, when do you get a chance to do something like that in front of a couple million people, you that's, know? That's a good point. Was it a good thing to be the chaplain of that character? Well, yeah, because <laughs> that character was a kind of blowhard. That was, that was his persona. Uh, and he would always, tr the, the, the character would always say dumb things about uh, religion or God or Jesus or the Gospels. And so my job was to kind of gently correct this persona, you know, this guy that was, you know, the self-proclaimed, uh, you know, blowhard. And so, you know, you could do a lot of catechesis on the show, you know, very gently. You know, if he said, oh, you know, what did Jesus care about the poor? He didn't care about the poor. You could say, well, no, you know, let's look at the Gospels. So... It was a nice way to catechize people, uh, you know, and, and sort of evangelize in a very sort of gentle, even funny way. Yeah, I talked to N.T. Wright uh, a few months ago about his appearance on there, and I, I think he'd been recorded as saying that, like, he prepared himself for the interview by imagining a smart aleck, you know, freshman in college. Did you have <laughs> to get yourself in character, like, to be prepared to deal with that? Well, you know, uh, every time you go on, and I heard this... Um, you know, when he would uh, talk to other people as well, before every time you went on, he would come in the green room, you know, where you're waiting, and he would say, uh, now, Father Jim, you know, my character is an idiot. You know? <laughs> so treat me like an idiot. And so that's, you know, I think N.T. Wright was, you know, correct. I mean, you know, obviously not all freshmen are idiots, but, uh, you know, his character was full of himself and really didn't know very much, and you had to be very patient with him. And so... You know, I mean, you know, we have, you know, we all meet people who are kind of, you know, overconfident and think they have all the answers. And so 
it was a kind of gentle way of uh, of responding to that character, you know. And you were, and as I said, it was always a great way to evangelize by correcting him, you know, gently. Yeah, I heard that there are plenty of authors who are heartbroken about him transitioning to CBS because yeah. it might not be as conducive of a show for authors to come on and talk about their books. Well, I think that's correct. I mean, I think it's more. We'll see, but I mean, I think it's more of a sort of traditional talk show. You know, which is more you know, celebrity-driven and film stars and things like that. But who knows? I mean, you know, he's pretty iconoclastic, and you don't know what he's going to do. I mean, uh, you know, I think his when he started out with the Colbert Report, I think people didn't know what was going to happen. They thought it was going to be a continuation of what you know the the other people had done in the past. So we'll see. We'll see. I certainly. Let me tell you, there's one author you're talking to that certainly hopes he, has, he, he gets to go on again. <laughs> Have you sent him a message saying, hey, I've got a new book out. Bring me on. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I sent him a copy of my book. And then also um, the first day of his uh, show, I went over and, and uh, spent some time with him and, and blessed the office, oh. uh, which, which was a lot of fun. Blessed his office, blessed the stage. And... Uh, well, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was over there, um, you know, I know some of the producers. He brought all of his people over there from the old show, which is really nice. Yeah. It's very kind of him, you know, I think, to kind of care for them like that. And I was in the theater, which people have seen now, the, the big studio. And uh, there was a producer there uh, who I had known. And she said, oh, Father Jim, you know, I need a blessing. And, you know, it's very funny. People get very... Even non-religious people get very, not exactly superstitious, but when you say, you know, would you like a blessing? Everybody will take it, you yeah, know? Yeah. Like, yeah, sure. So she said, oh, I want a blessing. So I had um, holy water. I had like a sprig of uh, some sort of branch or something that I had picked up at a deli here in New York because there's no greener anywhere in New York. And so I blessed her. And there was two guys standing next to her in sort of street clothes and T-shirts and jeans. And I said, do you guys want a blessing too? And they said, oh, yeah, sure. So I blessed him, and I looked up at one, and I said, oh, George Clooney, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> That's outstanding. It was I, very funny. Wow. I think as a you know, Protestant pastor, I feel like if I could get the collar and carry around some water, maybe I could find myself in some great situations like that, too. Oh, yeah. Everybody likes the sacramentals, as we call them. I mean, you know, everybody likes that stuff. And You know, it's funny, though. Um, you, you know, you get as many people who are attracted to that as you do repelled by that you know really so well i mean if you wear a collar you go into a place like that that's very secular i mean you know he's catholic of course but you know you walk around in a collar in a place like that and some people are like oh my gosh father you know most of the people who i knew let's put it that way from the old show know me oh you know father jim but you know you can see the faces on some people like whoa what the hell is this priest doing here yeah uh i mean as you know not everybody has a friendly relationship with organized religion, as you know. Yeah. That's so true. the collar opens doors that sometimes almost also shuts them, too. Well, well fair enough. Okay, one, yeah. of the, one of the things that I think is so interesting about you is that you have a degree from the Wharton Business School at Penn. I do, yeah. And so is, was there like a career track of people getting their MBA to go right into the priesthood? Were there classes <laughs> preparing you for that? No. It's funny. Um I studied as an undergrad at Penn at the Wharton School, and um, uh, I, I took a job at GE uh, in New York City and then in Connecticut. And um, basically, I realized that I was just in the wrong place and that this was not my vocation. I mean, you know, as you know, business is a really wonderful vocation for a lot of people. I'm sure you have a lot of yeah. parishioners and people you know, yeah, I mean, they, they flourish and they do really well. It just wasn't for me. 
And um, I came home one night and uh, turned on the TV and saw a documentary about uh, Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. And that got me thinking about doing something else with my life. And I, I really, I was not very religious. I mean, you know, uh, we didn't, we didn't really pray in common in my house. We went to mass most Sundays, not every Sunday. We didn't say grace at meals. We didn't, you know, we didn't really talk about God very much. I didn't go to any religious schools. So this kind of came out of the blue, but I really felt this attraction to this different kind of life. And, you know, that's how God works. I mean, God works through, primarily through desire and attraction. I mean, what we're called to is, you know, as you know, what we're attracted to and what mm-hmm. we, what we desire. And so, so it was, you know, it kind of hit me over the head and I was, you know, I was really, uh, sort of moved through God's grace into this, this new vocation, which I'm very grateful for. But yeah, certainly Wharton did not prepare me for this. <laughs> and that's for sure. We weren't, we weren't taking any courses on prayer at Wharton. Oh, that's weird. I figured you would. When, whenever I talk to a Catholic priest, my, you know, equivalent across the aisle, mm-hmm. I, I always feel like the calm story that as a Protestant pastor that I have, it always seems like it needs to be better to be a Catholic priest because let's be honest, you're giving up a whole lot more than I'm giving up to go into the, to the calling, you know? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know about that. I mean, you know, you give up a lot. I give up different things, but we also get different things in return. And I mean, in a sense, you could say that I have it easier because, you know, I take a vow of poverty and um, I live in a community and, you know, all my needs are taken care of. You know what I mean? So I don't, I don't have to worry about sort of earning a living. I mean, everybody gives, we, you know, we basically give like the, like the disciples and actually the apostles, we give everything into the community. So parts of my life are actually easier, you know, and, yeah. you know, the vow of chastity and the vow of celibacy means that, you know, I'm not getting up at, you know, <laughs> three in the morning for feedings, you know what I mean? That, yeah, that's so point. so it's, it's pluses and minuses, I think. I mean, I'm sure if we sat down and compared the pluses and minuses, you know, it's like that old, I love the old parable, I'm sure you've heard this one, where the, um, all the people in the village uh, come and... They all bring their own crosses. You know, everybody has their own cross in life. You know, yeah. if it's physical suffering or financial worries or family problems, they yeah. all bring their own crosses. Do you know this parable? Do you know this one? No, it sounds like. And a they, good they, one. they're they're invited to bring their crosses into the town square and leave them there, and then go home with whatever cross they want. Hmm. And they look around, and they all pick their own crosses. Really? Oh, that's good. You know what I mean? Like yeah. the idea that when you really do know other people's problems, you know, you, you get, you get some perspective, you get a perspective that, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, we all have our own crosses, you know, Yeah. but I've always, I've always loved that story. I think it's, it's a parable. I really think it's kind of pretty. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And it's, it's, I'm sure it's very fitting for, for just about all of us. That's, yeah, that's good. I, I just think I really like the people I work with in at, at the church, the staff, but I like that I get to go home at night. That's really, that's really nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, of course. And I mean, you know, that, that's definitely something that we give up, you know, um, but by the same token, uh, you know, I get to come home to a kind of a nice religious community of, of people that I love. And, uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's different. I always say to people, it's different. It's not better or worse. It's just different. It's just different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think we've agreed. You're going to keep your job. I'm going to keep mine. <laughs> yeah, you right. keep your cross. I'll keep mine. Yeah, so, right. So let's, <laughs> That's right. Let's talk about the book, The Abbey, which sure. 
I've heard, okay, so it's fiction. Your first foray into writing fiction. You've written Correct. a ton of stuff, uh, nonfiction. This is your first time writing fiction. And the story that I've heard is that you had a dream with the main characters in it. So you wake up, you write them down. Uh, so do you feel like you kind of shortcutted the system since God kind of wrote the story for you? Well, you know, it's funny you should say that. I mean, I I really do feel like it was an inspiration. Now, obviously, God is not, you know, dictating to me and... Uh, this is not, you know, yeah. it, it's not the Holy Spirit's like sitting on my shoulder and kind of, you know, chirping words into my ear. Um, but no, I, I had this dream, as you say, and I woke up and I thought, you know what, that's a good story. And it was pretty much fully formed. I mean, it had, um, you know, the story, um, for people who aren't familiar with it yet, uh, is a woman whose son dies at age 13 and, um, and she's grieving and she, there's a guy up the street from her who's renting from her who works as a, a handyman at a local monastery uh, run by the Trappists. And her car breaks down one night, and she, she gets a lift from him, and he says, oh, I forgot my cell phone. I have to stop off the monastery. And she's like, oh, okay. She's not really religious. And um, her father used to work there uh, when she was little, volunteering. She's not really been there in years and years and years. And he goes in, and she, he says, come on in. And she says, no, I'll sit in the car. And he says, come on, they're not going to bite. And so she goes in, and as she's sitting and listening to them chanting their prayers, you know, the monks chant their prayers seven times a day. No. She's really moved, and she's kind of tired, and she thinks about her father, she thinks about her son, and she starts crying. And she runs into the abbot, who's the head of the monastery, who asks, you know, how she's doing. And that starts these series of conversations that helps her to sort of find God in her life. So the irony is, you know, as you're saying, I, I, that was all in the dream. I, I woke up, I, including the names of the characters, the name of the monastery, fully formed. And I thought, you know what, that's, that's kind of cool. I, I could, let me see if I can start writing this. So I started writing it as if it were going to be just an e-book. And then it just got longer and longer. And, you know, my publisher said we'd be happy to publish it. Yeah, and, and you go through Harper One, who lots of friends of this podcast are Harper One people. And so yeah. they, they don't do a whole lot of fiction. They don't, uh, and that's why I was a little reluctant to show it to them. And in, fa- in point of fact, I really did think it was going to be more of a parable, more of a short story almost. Um, but the more I worked on it, the more I enjoyed the characters. You know, I mean, I really liked the characters. I really liked spending time with them, and I wanted to give them kind of full lives. Uh, and, I, I, you know, the last book I did was a book on Jesus, a very big book. Um, it's, it's a kind of life of Christ basically. And, you know, it took a lot of work and it was a lot of research and, you know, a lot of like research into the Greek and, uh, and my joke about this book, I would say to people, no Greek, no footnotes, no research. (laughs) That's a fun book to write. You know, what, what could be better, right? Yeah. Well, you you said you thought of it originally as a parable. And when we think of parables, they have a a point at the end. There's a, uh, there's kind of aha moment where we go, okay, that's the the little nugget we're supposed to take home from that, or the big nugget we're supposed to take home from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you write a story um, like this, you have characters. uh, There's not always this Pollyanna ending at the end, which we want. We want the two characters to fall in love and live happily ever after. Was there a tension that you had to wrestle with of, as a, a preacher, I mean, we, we tell stories that are parables that have nice endings. Uh, when you're writing fiction, when you're telling a story, y- you can't really let that kind of happen always. Yeah, I didn't want it to be too perfect at the end because, you know, life's not perfect. And I didn't want to wrap it up in a nice little bow. I mean, there is, there is resolution at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But you're right. There, you know, there there are three characters in the book. There's Anne, the 40 year old divorced woman who lost her son. There's Mark, the 30 year old handyman. There's a little attraction between them. There's the abbot, um, who also finds himself a little attracted to Anne. You know, he's a human being after all. Yeah. And you know, there's a tension that you know Mark and Anne should, you know, end up happily ever after. But she has had a an experience with uh, her husband, her former husband who is a real kind of partier and not really responsible. And the other character in the book, Mark, reminds her of him. And so she's sort of like, she's smart in a sense. She's like, you know what? I don't need this right now in my life. I got too much. He's not responsible. You know, he's too young. So I also wanted to give her a sense of independence and sort of agency, you know, that she's not just going to, you know, fall into bed with him or, you know, walk up the aisle with him because this happens to be a story and, you know, she's a woman and he's a man. Yeah. And I, I think that's true to the character. She's she's a little she's a little, you know, reluctant and that's that's true to who she is. So you're right. There is a there was a there was a temptation to say, Oh, and in the end everything works out, you know, everyone's happily ever after. And there's a lot of happiness and a lot of grace, but people's lives aren't perfect nor are they perfect in real life, you know? So I think it's good to kind of leave it a little open that way. Yeah, that's good. So I used to uh, live in Philadelphia. I was actually born there. Oh, wow. And oh no I, kidding. Me yeah. too. Where were you born? Oh, I used to live uh, in Audubon, which is just a couple oh, miles away. Oh, my gosh. What about you? I was born in Plymouth Meeting, which is not too far. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, so when I was probably six or so, we were living in Audubon, and I had two family friends over, uh, two girls who were both older than me. And we kind of walked down like this hilly embankment behind our house. And we were going to walk across the road that was on the bottom of this hill and plant a creek just you know, a couple hundred yards from our house. And so the older sister goes across the street first. Uh, and then I'm gonna, I was going to go last. And then the, uh, the younger sister was going to go second. And so as she crosses the street, there was a Ford Bronco that came around the corner, didn't see her. And uh, that was pretty much like the last time this girl uh, ever walked or talked on her own. And uh, oh she survived, God. but it was just tragedy. And, you know, I was a kid, and I, oh. uh, I remember running up to the house and calling 911 and all the first oh. responders in our, in our driveway. And it's a, a similar story to what Anne goes through where she loses her son. And as someone who, you know, I saw that as a kid, um, and it's one of those things as a kid, like you, you can't explain it away. And when you deal with tragedy, it seems like giving answers never really fixes it. Uh, Francis Spuford wrote a book called Unapologetic, and he's mm-hmm. got this great line about uh, when it comes to you know, theodicy, it's not that we have an answer, but we have a story. Yeah. And it seems like this is a book, it's not giving answers to, okay, this lady, uh, this, you know, this lady Anne lost her son, um, but it, it, it's a story. It kind of invites us into more of the complexities of life. Do you, do you feel like that was part of the struggle or maybe the requirement for dealing with the subject matter in fiction instead of nonfiction? Well, yes, I do. And that's actually, thank you for sharing that story with me. Um, I had a, I had a, to, to share a little bit, I had a friend who died very young too at age 21 and I sort of called on some of those memories, hmm. uh, to, to sort of write the story. Um, yeah. And the answer is yes, because I, I, yes, I think we, I think answers in the face of people's suffering, particularly, uh, you know, uh, you know, child suffering or illness or, you know, what I would call kind of accidental or natural suffering, you know, yeah. uh, you know, or like hurricanes or, 
uh, tornadoes or something, you know, where there seems to be, you know, kind of no explanation. And it's very random. To give people answers and say, well, this is what it means. You know, God's doing this because of this. I, I think is, you know, while you may have that sort of belief system, and I do believe that God, you know, there's a larger purpose, obviously, you know, for mm-hmm. the world. To give people these easy answers is really sometimes very unhelpful for them, you know. Um, you know, why is my, why did my 13-year-old son die in an accident? Oh, my gosh, like, what answer can you give? I agree, the, 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 the story, you know, really is the story of Jesus, basically. And the two things that I come back to over and over again as, as a Christian is, number one, Jesus suffered all that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, he, he suffered not only on Good Friday, not only on the cross and physically and sort of emotionally and spiritually, but I always remind people he lived a real human life. And so he, you know, he would have seen St. Joseph die. Joseph is not at the crucifixion or in his public ministry. So clearly, you know, he would have seen St. Joseph die. He would have seen his friends be sick. He would have seen people die in Nazareth and in Judea. He understood what it meant to live a human life so that when you're praying to Jesus, you have someone who understands you. I think that, for me, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and Father Paul talks about that with Anne. So God understands you. It's not, a, you know, as, as the letter of the Hebrews, I think, says, you know, we don't have a God who is you know, distant and doesn't understand us and hasn't suffered. And then the second thing is, suffering is not the last word. Yeah. You know, we believe in the resurrection. That is the centerpiece of my faith, you know, the resurrection, and also eternal life, you know, for those who believe in God. So, so you're right. There's no answer. And I also think that even if I were to say to someone who was suffering and say lost a child, I don't even know if I would say it in that way. I don't even know. If, I might say the first thing that, you know, um, to, to sort of invite the person into a relationship with the God who understands them. Yeah. It seems the like second thing, the, the resurrection thing, might even be due too 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 soon, too hard for them to hear. Because in other words, you can't say to someone, you know, well, your son's in heaven, yeah. you know, and so don't worry about it. So you're right to invite people into the story and to invite people in a relationship with God. I think is is and to really to take them where they are. First of all, to just listen, as you know, as a pastor, yeah. like where are you? What's going on? How are you feeling? Can you be honest with God? And Anne in the book is very angry at God. Not surprisingly. Yeah. It, it seemed like Father Paul's goal was to get her to just communicate with God. Like, it seemed yeah. like prayer was the goal. And I think that at the end, she started to feel that God was had compassion for her. Is that, yes. is that what you think, like, the goal of lamenting in prayer is, to get to where you say God understands this and God is compassionate towards me in my lament? Well, what a great—that's a, that's a great question. Um, yeah, that's a great question. You know, I would say— God, as I understand it, um, you know, God always wants to be in relationship with us. And this is one of the hallmarks of Jesuit spirituality, God and the Christian spirituality. God wants to be in relationship with us. And what does it mean to be in a relationship with someone? Well, one of the things it means is to be honest and open. And what happens if you're in a relationship with somebody that is just based on things that you think you should say? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it becomes very cold and very distant and very formal and, and in a sense, not very satisfying, you know, kind of just flat and shallow. So I believe that God desires not only for us to be in relationship with God, but also to be honest and open and transparent and share everything 
like you would share with a good friend. Now, sometimes that means sharing your frustration and sharing your anger and sharing your, your, your lament. Mm-hmm. As you say, because, you know, first of all, God can handle it. I mean, you look at the Psalms. I mean, you know, God can handle that. And you look at the way people talk to Jesus. They would come up and they would say, you know, like the father uh, who, of the epileptic boy, that great story. You know, he, he in a sense says, you know, my, my son has been suffering for all these years. The spirit throws him into the fire. And it's a kind of lament. It's a kind of, please help me, you know? Yeah. Uh, or, or Mary and Martha at the, at the story of Lazarus, which is my, one of my favorite stories. In a sense, they come up and they kind of complain and they say, where were you? Hmm. I mean, we tend to think of that very piously. At least a lot of people I know think of it very piously. Like, oh Lord, if you had been here. But, and it is a statement of faith, but, but they're complaining. Where were you? So can we be honest with God? And I think that's what Paul Father Paul tries to invite Anne to do. Just be at the beginning, be honest with God about how you feel. And how she feels at the beginning is anger because her son's taken away. And then then I think for a lot of people it's a real breakthrough because they feel that they can be themselves and that God can meet them as themselves, even angry. Now obviously you know your whole prayer life cannot be being angry at God. I mean, you know, it's because that would be just as strange as any relationship that's based on anger. But yes, the answer to your question is yes. It's a kind of invitation and a kind of honesty. Yeah. So what do you think prevents people from having that sort of lamenting honesty? Oh, well, I that another great question, my friend. Uh, <laughs> that they feel it's that they feel it's inappropriate. And I I'd ask I'd ask the same question of you too. You must have the same experience that that they think they shouldn't do that, that they've been told they should not, you know, sort of be frustrated or angry at God, that it's kind of an insult, that it's, it's ungrateful. You hear that a lot, yeah. you know. And I say, look, you know, if, if you have lost your job or if you're sick, how could you not ask God for help? How could you not be frustrated? Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, in your experience, in your with your denomination, what do you think prevents people? It, it seems that people think, first of all, you, you can't say that to God. Like, God's going to yeah. str- strike you down. Like, if you yeah. complain to God, God's going to be mad at you and punish you. I think mm. that the second is that they don't... Um, they they feel like expressing their anger is a sign of un, unfaithfulness. It's a Well, that's true, too. Yeah. And so yeah. if if I'm upset at God because I lost my job or I'm sick... That means that, you know, whatever way they understand, you know, God's plan in the world, it means that I don't have faith that, you know, this is God's plan for me. And, and obviously that brings up some different questions about how God works with specific issues and sovereignty and all that. But it, it seems to be a, a lack of faith that it's expressed. Yeah. And yet, you know, I mean, it's natural. I mean, I think you can still have faith and still be frustrated. So, I mean, I, I you know, my faith in God is... <laughs> You know, it's absolute. I still get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. I still get frustrated, and I still say, gee, God, what's going on now? Uh, and, you know, again, in the Gospels, uh, you know, once again, Mary and Martha, look at them. You know, they are, Lord, if you, where were you? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is really, you know. But then they say, but even now I know that you'll get, you know, anything you ask God, God will give you. Um, I think what happens is, you know, again, if you want to be in an honest relationship with God, to be able to say, out of faith, uh, you know, I'm frustrated or angry. Look at Psalm 13, how long, O oh Lord, how yeah. long will you forget your servant forever? You know, that's, that's a lament psalm. There's a whole sort of uh, tradition of that. So, 
The other thing I always say to people is this, look, even if you are lamenting, and maybe that's an easier word for people to hear than complain, even if you're lamenting, you are still in relationship with God. You know, I mean, the person who has no faith is not even talking to God. Yeah, that's true. Right? I mean, so if you're speaking to God and you're you're in relationship with God, that's the key thing. And also the other thing I say to people is, look, God can handle it. <laughs> yeah, God is, God is not upstairs, you know, crying because you said that. He, he's a big boy. He can handle that. Exactly. Yeah. One, of right. the, one of the problems with, you know, my side of the aisle is that most of our hymnody, like the current songs that you hear on a normal Sunday morning at a worship service, they're all positive. Like, they do not reflect the Psalms' uh, inclusion of lament, which, mm. you know, there's a, a ton of them. I mean— some have speculated that you're looking around half of them or so. And most of our evangelical songs do not reflect that sort of emotion. Well, that's interesting. I mean, in the Catholic tradition, we have some more recent ones uh, that are, you know, more sort of expressive of, you know, help me, basically. Um, you know, or like Be Not Afraid, for example, is a very popular one. And then certainly the older ones are very, you know, I mean, the Catholic faith is, sometimes was overly focused on suffering, huh. you know. Uh, but it was often a, a, a sort of a sort of uh, peon or a kind of glorification of Jesus' suffering. Um, I think people still are struggling with how to how to speak to God, uh, you know, in in honest ways. And as you say, I've never thought of the, the I've never thought of that other part that they might be afraid God would punish them. Uh, but you think here, here's what I would say to people: Look, if we look at our relationship to God analogously to the way we look to, at a relationship to a close friend. Obviously, it's different. I mean, yeah. very different. Um, if you were with a close friend and you had just lost, you know, God forbid, your child or something, wouldn't it be odd to be with your close friend and not speak about that and not speak about your sadness and not speak about your, your, your struggle? And, and, you know, if your friend can understand you and want to be with you, as we say in the Jesuits, how much more you know, does God yeah. want to does God want to accompany you? Uh, and if your friend is compassionate and loving and wants to help you, how much more, you know, would the Lord God want to be with you? And I, I think that, you know, I think the other thing is that that prevents people is a little bit of pride too. Really? You know, how so? Well, you know, well, like being vulnerable. Oh yeah. I mean, really vulnerable with with the Creator. I think can be threatening. You know, I mean, there's a tendency in all of us, whatever denomination, particularly in the United States of, you know, I'm on top of stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah, I got all um, together. Yeah. At, everything's fine. I can deal with it. My faith is strong. I don't need, and you know, and that, that sort of is a bit of a barrier to letting God in and seeing you really as you are. So it's a kind of, it's a kind of presentation to God of something that is not real, which is, I'm fine. Well, you know, inside you may not be fine. So why not show God your not fine self? Why not show God where you really are? I mean, look at, you know, I, one of my favorite passages is, I think it's Luke 5, um, the, the call of St. Peter, where he says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, he, look, at, look, at, look at Peter. He, you know, falls to his knees and says, I'm sinful. That's very vulnerable. He doesn't say, like, oh, yeah, I, I got, you know, fine, I have it all, you know. No. <laughs> like, yeah. and, and so, and Jesus still calls him. 
He calls him in his vulnerability. He calls him in his brokenness. And can we be broken and vulnerable before God? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, uh, I don't think that that really goes too well with the whole uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps kind of mentality. That's, uh, in some ways, it's like the antithesis of the, uh, the Colbert character. It's like, you know, I've got it all figured out. I, I, don't, <laughs> right. I, I don't have any questions. I, I'll get through this no matter what. And so, yeah, and who has it, who has it figured out? I mean, that, and that really is a kind of spiritual pride. It's very subtle because, I mean, you know, everyone deals with this, I think, in the Christian world. There's faith. You know, obviously, you, you, are, you have complete faith in God. But you don't want to let it become something where it's like, I have all the answers. Yeah. And I don't need anything because I got my faith. Yep. Well, if you don't need anything, then, then it's almost like you don't need God. You know, so it's a very subtle thing, I think. So it's, I think it's just about being honest. That's all. You know, being honest and open and transparent with the Lord. Who... Yeah. Who wants our honesty? Yeah, and, and I love the way your book, you know, points us towards uh, that type of relationship with God, which I think is it's so much more healthy. And w- one of the things that Anne needed to go through to develop her relationship with God, according to uh, Father Paul, was re-understanding who God was, which meant that she had to strip away some of the expectations and images that she had of God based upon her earthly parents. Yeah, she had a very, uh, as many of us do, um, you know, uh, an idea of God as purely judgmental or purely judging. Now, obviously, as I say in the book, this is from a Jesuit friend. I really like this. You know, God does judge us because a God who doesn't judge is a God who doesn't care. Doesn't okay, can care you explain what... that a little bit? Well, I mean, you know, I, I do believe in some form of the last judgment and, and that God, God cares how we treat one another. Okay. You know, so if I'm going around stealing and, you know, punching people in the face or worse, if I'm killing people or something like that, and God's like, you yeah, know, whatever, <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't believe in that, you know, but God is more than just judgment, yeah. uh, you know, God's yeah. mercy, God's love. And Anne has in her mind this God of pure judgment and that she got that from, you know, her upbringing and, and also her parents who are quite demanding, loving but demanding. And she is invited by Father Paul to kind of think about other images. You know, Jesus offers us all sorts of images. I mean, the, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son, as you know, the father, you know, obviously doesn't approve of what the son did, but he welcomes him and he loves him and he forgives him. So it's a, that's a different way of understanding God. And Father Paul invites Anne to kind of think about images of God that, that sort of appeal to her. And and God offers her, um, in this kind of spiritual experience she has, which is very subtle, uh, an image of, of God that she likes and that she can connect to. And that's good. It's a, it's a good image. And part of his way of getting her there is he has this line from the book in which he says, let it be God, not your image of God. Yeah, which, let it be right. Yeah, and so, you know, funny you, enough, I say that a lot to my spiritual directees. Oh, know? really? Well, okay, well so how is that possible? It seems like... You know, okay, so, you know, I go to seminary, I get an MDiv, I, you know, I read this book and that book, and I'm trying to understand who God is, and I don't know if it's ever possible for me to strip away all the other things that I bring to the table when I say the word God. Well, that's a great point, exactly. But what I would say is this, I would say now, okay, now, what has your experience of God been in your life? You know, so I would say, what, what, how have you experienced God? And you say, well, you know, I've, I've experienced God through my, my congregation and through Scripture and, mm-hmm. um, you know, my family and, you know, preaching and, you know, all this study. And I would say, well, what's that God like? You say, oh, you know, at, the, at, the, at my peak moments, God just feels so comforting 
and uh, calm, and these are words a lot of people use, and loving. Yeah. And I say, well, that's your experience of God. God is comfort, calm, love. So that's what I'm talking about. Now, you can have other images of God that you know from, you know, you know from Scripture and tradition and stuff like that, but your, your primary experience of God, as God is relating to you and as God is manifesting uh, himself to you, is that, is comfort, calm, love. That, to me, is just as important. The way God is, the way you experience God is just as important as the images or the uh, you know, the kind of, the kind of uh, sort of templates that we had for God growing up. So you mm-hmm. can have both. But I think what happens is people look mainly at the images that they, they were kind of inculcated in them, and they don't allow their direct experience of God to kind of uh, be as important. So that's what he says to Anne. You know, not just your image of God, but God as, as, as God is experienced. It's almost like the story of Jesus. I mean, you know, the people of Israel had this idea of who God was, you know, and, you know, the Creator, the Lord, the Sovereign, you know, which is all true. I mean, that's, you know, God the Creator, of course. But then Jesus came, and then they had an even more direct experience, and they were a little surprised. They're like, well, what is this? Who's this guy? You know? Um, so it's, it's inviting people to look at their own experience of God, which I think is, you know, that's the way God's approaching you. So, you know, you need to take it seriously. Yeah. That's good. So you want to figure out who God is, be aware of the expectations you're bringing to the table, the images that you have, and there has to be some sort of discernment process to say, is this good, is this bad? And so Anne had to get rid of her judgmental parents. And for me, I've got to, you know, my dad is one of my closest people in my life. He's always been a source Mm -hmm. of love. And so when I hear, you know, Heavenly Father, I think my dad, and that's a great thing. That helps me get closer to a loving God. But like Anne, not everyone has that. And so they've got to be able to differentiate those. That's right. That's right. And I mean, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of people for whom uh, God the Father is very appealing because they've had a great father. If you had, and Anne's father is actually a lovely guy, but he was very demanding. If you had a uh, absentee father or God forbid an abusive father, and you say to someone, you need to relate to God as father, obviously that's going to be, that's going to bring up a lot of baggage, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, to be able to Experience God in a way that helps you to kind of get closer to God. I think is is ideal. Uh, and different people experience God in different ways. You know, for a lot of people that come to me in spiritual direction, it's very, you know, they experience God kind of in nature and in beauty. And I say, oh, fine, that's fine. You know, I mean, if that's if that's the way that you are primarily experiencing God, great. But yeah, I mean, if an image gets in your way. Uh, or if it's the only image that you have of God, and if it gets in the way of an actual encounter with God. So, for example, let's say you had a terrible father, you know, absentee or abusive mm-hmm. or really mean or whatever. You know, if I said to someone, okay, now um, start to pray to God, <laughs> you, you, and, you know, if you were upset about something or, or sad, you'd have a very hard time kind of praying to God if that's all. If that's the only image you had because you'd think of this terrible father. Yeah. So, you know, and to invite people to think about new images, new images of God. And also Jesus gives us tons of images of God in the, in the parables, like a million of them. Yeah. So I would say, look, you know, here, you want a new image of God? Jesus is giving us one. So why don't you pray with that one? Pick one of those, yeah. Okay, so speaking of things that get in the way, as, in, as a Protestant, I'm reading the book, and the one thing that, that goes, this is weird to me, is praying to Mary. 
Now, I just yeah. was talking to Richard Rohr, who uh, I know wrote a, I think he wrote a blurb in the back of your book. So yeah. you're familiar with Richard. And, oh, very, yeah. And so his line to me a couple weeks ago was, okay, Protestants undervalue Mary, which is true. Mm-hmm. Like, we don't talk about, we're like, oh, we don't want to be Catholics. And then his line was that Catholics sometimes overvalue Mary. Yeah, that's very true. So what does it mean to, like, how, how would you communicate to someone from my background uh, how Mary can be a source of comfort? For well, very, very simply, and I always, I always like to tell my Protestant friends this. We look. We are basically asking for her prayers. That's it. Okay. So the same way that I would ask a friend on Earth to pray for me, which I'm sure you do, yeah, right? I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, we're asking her in heaven to pray for us. That's it, basically. I mean, you know, you're asking for her prayers, and Anne feels close to her because you know she's a mother. We don't worship her. She's not over Jesus. <laughs> she's not over God. There's a lot of misconceptions, and I think. Um, so that's, that's the most important thing. We're just asking. And why wouldn't you want to ask Mary for her prayers? I would ask Mary for her prayers. I'll ask anybody for their prayers <laughs> in heaven. Um, but the other thing is, uh, Mary lived a very human life. You know, Mary's not divine. And she is someone who was a you know, poor woman in Nazareth who you know, uh, had to deal with such very unusual son, needless to say. <laughs> and, you know, as you know, when he starts his ministry, she's not too happy about it. She goes from Nazareth to Capernaum to collect him, you know. And, you know, he's the wedding feast of Cana. She's the one that has to kind of say, you know, you need to do what you need to do. Even though he says, woman, what concern is this of yours? She goes through the crucifixion, and then she's, you know, she's obviously, you know, uh, present, or he appears to her at some point, you know, after the resurrection. So the point is this. You're, you know, when you ask that person for prayers, you're asking for the prayers of someone who, you know, understands you really well, you know. Okay. She's not Jesus, she's not God, but, you know, it would be like this. It would be like if you, God forbid, if you had cancer, and there was a cancer survivor mm-hmm. in your town, and she said, I'd pray for you, you'd probably be really moved by that. I can if buy that. Person that. Would, yeah, I can yeah, so, that. yeah, so it is. We, I, I, I try not to put too much about Mary in the book, but... She's also someone who lost her son, you know, and Anne kind of connects with her. So that's the idea. Uh, it, it, it really does make sense in the book. Yeah. And so this Protestant can get behind that, too. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it was a good book. Well done. Are you going to continue writing fiction, or you think this is a one-off? Well, I, you know, if I always say if God gives me another dream, I'll do that. But uh, you know what I'm working on now? It's kind of part fictional, part uh, historical. I'm doing... I really am enjoying. I did this book on Jesus called Jesus of Pilgrimage, yeah. and uh, there was a lot of stuff that I, I, I couldn't do, obviously, because it's, you know, it's, I only had you know, so much space in the book. Uh, I'm writing the fictional memoirs of the Apostle Nathaniel. All right. Just, you know, he's kind of a fun apostle. He's the one who says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Yeah. You know, which, which is a bit of a dig. You know, as people know, I mean, as you know, people usually sort of pass over that and say, oh, that's nice. But that's, you know, he's kind of insulting Nazareth. Yeah. But Jesus still loves him. He's the apostle without guile. He's only in John's gospel. So it's sort of like his memoirs and what it was like to be with Jesus. And I'm, I'm kind of having fun with it. What, how far along in the process are you? Oh, very early. I only have about 20 pages. So. <laughs> okay, so we've got a while before we hear that one. Absolutely. So you're describing that as part fictional, part historical, which ironically, yeah. that's how people describe my sermons. That's so Pardon? funny. No. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that's good. So we'll look forward to seeing that out in uh, two years or so, whenever you get done with that. But, uh, hey, thanks for the time. It's great meeting you. Oh, uh, listen, thank you so much, and, and keep me in your prayer. Yes, sir, will do. Blessings. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. 
you are now adjourned. <laughs>